Let's take our Bibles, brothers and sisters, and turn to the first letter of Peter. 1 Peter, chapter 1. I'd like to read with you the verses 1 through 12, and then we'll turn to Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. First Peter, chapter 1, at verse 1, and the word of God reads here as follows. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. But now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of the salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you to those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. So far, brothers and sisters, the reading from God's holy word. No, we should also read Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Eighteen through twenty-six. Then I hated all my labor, in which I have toiled under the sun. Because I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. And yet he will rule over all my labor, which I toiled, and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor which I had toiled under the sun. 
For there's a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what is man for all his labor and for the striving of his heart which is toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful and his work burdensome. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink, that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat? For who can have enjoyment more than I? God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give it to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. I may, brothers and sisters, proclaim to you this morning the word of our God as we could read it from Peter and Ecclesiastes. The window I would like to use to open up particularly the passage from Peter is verse 3, the second part of verse 3, where we're told that God, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope. Begotten us again. And to the degree that we're familiar with biblical language, we read in the Old Testament and so-and-so begot so-and-so, right? The term begot sends our thoughts to conception. Most other reliable translations, however, render the Greek of this text with the word born again. In other words, nine months later. And that's indeed the moment that Peter wishes to highlight. Birth. Rebirth. So the question I want to ask me this morning is, so what's so exciting about being born again? And I dare to ask it as a question like that. What's so exciting about it? Because of the way Peter constructs verse 3. He bursts out in an enthusiastic song of praise at the beginning of the verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, why? Because he's called to be born again. Hence my question. So what's so exciting about being born again? For that matter, are you born again? How would you answer that? And why would you answer as you would? It's the gospel of our text, brothers and sisters. Believers in Jesus Christ are born again and being born again is ultra exciting. And so I summarize the sermon with this theme, 
pilgrims, bless God because he's caused us to be born again. And in developing the theme, I want to answer with you three questions. The first is, what is being born again? And the second, how does being born again play itself out in daily life? And the third, why are we told? So the first question to deal with, what is being born again? I suspect, congregation, that you're going to be inclined to answer that question, what is being born again, with reference to conversion, regeneration, as we acknowledge it in Lord's Day 33, the dying of our old nature and coming to life of the new. And that would not be incorrect, not at all. But we do need to be careful here because if Peter had wanted to unpack the doctrine of conversion, of regeneration, he would have used those terms. But he doesn't. He uses instead a word picture, born again. That's a compound word, right? Born and again. And we understand it's an odd concept. Odd because, well, we know what born refers to. The period of gestation in the womb is complete and the baby must exit. That's being born. And being born represents a, a new stage in the baby's existence. The previous months, the baby been confined to the womb with its walls. That was, can I put it this way, the baby's world, and hence the baby's worldview, very restricted. The baby couldn't kick. Well, could, but there was a wall. Couldn't see. So little the baby could do. Born represents an escape from that restricted, narrow world, womb-sized environment, into a broad, into an open, into an expansive world where there's opportunity for all kinds of things. Cry, drink, yes, kick. Crawl, walk, run, explore. It's a world of, of opportunity. It's a huge contrast, that restricted worldview, womb-sized versus the wide open spaces of being born. And we also realize that once a child is born, you cannot turn the clock back and put the baby back in the womb. That doesn't work. As a matter of fact, if the born child were to act unborn, well, we understand that's a very ominous sign, 
So that's born. But Peter attaches a second word, born again. Clearly, physically impossible, as Nicodemus also registered in his conversation with Jesus. And Jesus made clear, no, this is something spiritual, a spiritual birth. And then what's the point there? The point being, brothers and sisters, before the spiritual birth, you have a, can I say, a confined, womb-sized worldview where reality is restricted to what the eye can see, the hands can touch, science can explore, philosophers and poets can write about. In other words, this world with its boundaries of birth and death. And with those boundaries, we recognize it becomes impossible to answer some of life's most pressing questions, questions as, where do we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? What standards do you use to determine how to live well? It's the kind of thing that Solomon was talking about in Ecclesiastes. He says, to give a moment, who knows what the real difference is between the life of a man and the life of a dog? What is the difference? Why is it different? And who knows whether the soul of a man goes to a different place than the soul of an animal? Who's to say? Yeah, if you cut inside this, this, this restricted, the boundaries of, of a womb-sized world, you just with the eye sees, well, you can't answer these questions. And that's why in the passage we read, Solomon goes so far as to say that you can labor for your, your heart out, but it's all, it's all vanity. And so what you're best off to do is just eat, drink, and be merry. Just make the most of to die and... Why? Well, just cause. But Peter says, it's, uh, Solomon says, it's, it's vanity. It doesn't answer the deep questions that restlessness in the human heart. It's meaningless. It's a spinning of wheels. And life, Psalm 39, is a sigh, is a burden. Death is inevitable. What's it for? I don't know. But Peter says now, but here's the gospel. The gospel is we're born again. And that's to say we've exited this hemmed in, restricted, womb-sized worldview determined by what the eyes see and the hands touch and science can explore. He says we've, we've escaped that into something much bigger, something 
much more exciting. He calls it a living hope. Outside that limited worldview, you've got hope. You've got possibility. You've got optimism. And we understand that contrasts with the bleak, with the hopelessness, the vanity of this womb-sized worldview. Now what I should do next is unpack the word hope and what's its content. But before I get to that, there's a couple other questions that we need to answer. The first one, who is born again? Peter answers that question in our text, that according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again, caused us to be born again. Notice that pronoun, us. Who is that? Well, we understand this is Peter and his readers, right? Peter, well, we know him as a disciple of Jesus Christ. He has witnessed Jesus' work, his life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, ascension, Pentecost. Peter loved his Lord and Savior, be it in weakness. We understand that, but he loved his Lord and Savior. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was in prison on account of the faith. From everything we know about Peter, we have no doubt he was born again. What about Peter's readers? What do we know of them? Well, these are the people who were living in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's the northwest corner of present-day Turkey. People who had come to know the gospel. We don't know how, it doesn't matter. But the result is, according to verse 8, Though you have not seen him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible. They heard the gospel, they believed the gospel. And so they loved the Lord. They were elect, according to verse 1. Verse 2, they were washed with the, sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, Peter dares to say, you're born again. Now the question arises, can we take this word us and apply it to, to us? And the answer is going to have to be yes. And why do I say that? Because if Peter can say that his readers are born again because they love the Lord and believe in him, 
then can I not say the same thing in relation to you and me? Are we born again? Yes. We love the Lord and we believe in him. Now it's a concept that I'll have to come back to in the coming weeks. But let that answer suffice for now. There's one other thing to say about this question of who. When Peter says that we have been born again, us, he's clearly making a distinction. There are other people in the community who are not born again. Peter's readers lived in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. So there, according to Peter then, there's a, a percentage of the population of those provinces born again, by implication, a percentage not born again. Now you think about it. What he's saying, there is a percentage who have escaped this narrow, constricted, womb-sized worldview, there's also percentage unborn, they're still confined inside that restricted worldview. That's a differentiation I want to come back to momentarily. The other question I need to answer before I carry on about this word hope is how. How does this born again happen? We know how being born happens. Of all things are well, there comes a moment when mother's contractions push the baby out of the womb. We're very aware that the baby does nothing. Being born happens to the infant. How about born again? How does it happen? And Peter answers that. It happens through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's how it happens, he says. Through the resurrection, what's that mean? We sang from Psalm 90. The life of man is 70 years, by reason of strength it is 80. Scripture tells us, and we know it from experience, there are no exceptions. There's no one who escapes death. Everybody dies, and the reason for that is we're all sinners. And the wages of sin is death. And we also know that those who die stay dead. We've never seen a resurrection. At God's appointed time, Jesus died. He was 33 years old. 
was buried. But here's the marvel. Three days later, he arose. Literally, physically, he escaped death's hold to come to life again Easter Sunday. And he had already foreshadowed his coming resurrection by raising many people in the course of his three-year ministry. Between brackets, Peter writes his letter 25, 30 years after Jesus' resurrection to people who lived hundreds of kilometers away from where Jesus was buried and arose. But communication in that world, brothers and sisters, was such anybody who felt challenged by the gospel's message that Jesus died and arose could very easily make it his business to go and seek verification. You could go to Jerusalem with plenty of witnesses that Jesus had risen from the dead. The fact that Peter can keep saying what he says, you've been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that a whole concept would fall down like a house of cards if it could be proven that Jesus did not arise from the dead. In point of fact, anybody who would challenge it could actually get verification. There was, like I said, there was, there was, there was plenty of witnesses. And it was the fact that the witnesses to Jesus' resurrection underscored, yes, he died, yes, he actually arose, that gave the punch to Peter's statement in this text, you've been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. With that resurrection so many years ago, Jesus did something amazing, something awesome. Can I put it this way? He opened the cervix of this compressed, this narrow, womb-sized worldview, squeezed it so that people are born, are born again, into a whole new worldview that sees beyond the boundary of death to what's on the other side. And what's on the other side? Well, that's this, this living hope that I'd mentioned before. Okay, so let's go back to this living hope now. And what's that? That brings us to our second point. How does rebirth play itself out in daily life? What's, What's it look like? Hope. We use the word to suggest a measure of uncertainty. We hope the weather will be nice tomorrow. When Paul or Peter used the word, as was, that's what the word meant in those days, it caught the notion of of conviction, of, of certainty. There's just no doubts. In other words, someone who is born again has this hope 
this certainty, a perspective that's unimaginably glorious that you could not have before you were born again. Anybody not born again, still in the constricted worldview of the womb, can't begin to fathom this hope, this certainty, this perspective that the born person has. That hope outside the womb, a broad vista of opportunity spiritually. You can crawl, you can walk, you can run, you can explore, you can do so much. There's a future. The apostle even adds the word living. A living hope. It pulses with life, with opportunity. And what is it? What's the opportunity? What's the life? What's the exciting thing? And Peter says, it's an inheritance. An inheritance. We all know what that is. Parents die, and the children inherit whatever's left. There's a parent-child, father-child dynamic happening here. Now, Peter says, you've been born again. Clearly, that involves a parentage. And so he even mentions in verse 18, something about God being, or verse 17, for, uh, God being your father. Well, this father will not die but this father has prepared an inheritance that he at his time is going to give you. And what is that time? He's going to give it to you, verse 5, on the last day, revealed in the last time, when Jesus comes back, the revelation of Jesus Christ in verse 7. You're going to receive this inheritance, but what is it? And that's this this glorious life with God, a paradise restored. It's what's described in verse 4, and an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, doesn't fade away, reserved in heaven for you. There it is already in that heavenly bank, and there is no moth, there is no rust, there is no anything that can take it away. You enter the presence of God. There to see for yourself the glories, what it means to belong to God, the treasure that Jesus had spoken about when Jesus prayed, Father, my desire is that they may see my glory which you've given to me. That's what's set aside. What those who are born, again, can look forward to. It's exciting. 
that inheritance. So much so that, Paul says, that Peter says in verse 12 that angels desire to look at it. And then I can just share with you that that concept of angels desiring to look at it captures the notion of a child curious to see who the company is and so pushes aside the window dressing and presses nose against the glass, right? To see the company. But that, that eagerness, that curiosity to see. And Peter says, hey, that's what the angels are doing. Because they know the Father. What God's prepared is, is, is that glorious? Well, how much more then? May the, those who are born again be so keen to see the wonders of the glories, the inheritance that God's prepared for us. And that's also why, brothers and sisters, the apostles of verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. That expectation of that inheritance, already you're born again. You know that a life outside the womb has so many more opportunities. Well, this is what's ahead for you. That inheritance, being in the presence of God, in this you greatly rejoice. Longing to see what God's prepared. And now we need to add that the fact that Peter's readers are rejoicing is an amazing thing. And why do I say that? Because, verse 1, there's a reference to the pilgrims of the dispersion. Other translations render that same word with the word exiles. The concept comes back in chapter 2, verse 11. There's reference to being sojourners and pilgrims. In what way were Peter's readers pilgrims, sojourners, exiles? From sources outside the Bible, we are aware that Caesar forcibly displaced people, the one part of his realm to another, and that includes forcing people to settle in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Now, given where we live in this part of God's world, the greater Armadale area, all of us are aware that migrants have a challenging time settling in. It's challenging because they speak a different language, have a different culture, look different, dress differently. 
that generates in turn difficulties in getting a job, getting a promotion. It's always got economic implications. We're also aware that the fact of the differences, like it or not, generates a measure of suspicion, distrust. Well, Peter's readers knew exactly what this was all about. I do not know whether Peter's readers were themselves physically amongst those whom Caesar had transplanted. But they certainly knew what displaced people were and the challenges they face. And now Peter says, you are pilgrims. You are sojourners. You are exiles. You are different than the people of your wider community. Well, yes, the people of the wider community were not born again. They still had this restricted, limited worldview. What is true, what is valuable, is only what you can see, what you can touch, what you can experiment on, boundaried by birth and death. But Peter says, but you've been born again. You've escaped that narrow worldview. You've got this very broad understanding of reality. It includes the reality of God and the privilege of being his children and the inheritance that comes. Clearly, the unborn of your community can't grasp your worldview. So don't be surprised that they treat you with a measure of suspicion, of distrust. These Christians are funny people. They talk about life after death. They say having stuff is actually not all that important. Let goods and kindred go. There's more to life also because, because we've got this inheritance. And that's more important than all the stuff that we have here. And the unborn don't get it. And I think, we get that. Well, that's the context in which Peter says that his readers are rejoicing. When around them they're treated with suspicion and that's different values. But he says you rejoice because you know where you're going, you know why things happen as they happen. But that explains the second part of verse 6. For a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. Yeah, that suspicion, that, 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 that's, that puts pressure on the, on the child of God. But the intriguing thing is, that pressure, that suspicion, that sense of being out of step with the wider community 
did not kill the joy of those who were born again. And that's a thought, my brothers and sisters, that we do well to bear in mind now. that hope you have, how important is that to you? Gets us to our third point. Why need we know this? The thing is, the letter of 1 Peter is a favorite of persecuted Christians. Now, we're not persecuted, but there is an increasing sense of marginalization, an increasing sense of the people of the community. They don't get what makes us tick. Yeah, obviously not. But it does drive home the question, my brothers and sisters, Is the inheritance that God's prepared for you, that inheritance that you can see with the eye of faith, is that inheritance bigger, more important, louder in your thinking, in your speaking, than all the toys, the opportunities, this life offers. Where's the priority? Is it in fact what the eye sees? So, what's in the womb, that worldview? Or is your priority in fact what's outside the womb? the glories to come. When Peter writes his letter to his readers, he's challenging them. You've been born again. Okay then, then be born again. If you want to continue to act as if you were unborn, as if reality is simply what the eye sees, well, you know what happens to a, to a born child who insists on acting as if he's still in the womb? That, that child's going to die. And so Peter says to his readers, you too, you've been born again. But now be born again. Act the part. You have a living hope. A hope that pulsates with expectation, with life, with opportunity. Grab it. Live that hope. And people around you don't understand you? Well, surprise. Of course they don't. Don't let it discourage you. On the contrary, let that be incentive to bless 
the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who caused us to be born again. What privilege that we can escape and narrow this worldly worldview. What privilege that God would open up the womb for our benefit and we have life. Christ will soon return. I don't know when. But as the apostle says in verse 8, we haven't seen Christ yet. Yet we love him. We do not see Christ today. Yet we believe. And we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Anticipating full redemption of our souls. He's coming. Maybe today. Maybe tomorrow. And then, my brothers, my sisters, you will see him with your own eyes. And so will the entire community. And everybody will acknowledge that those who were born again have a distinct advantage over those not born again. Are you born again? You love the gospel? You believe the gospel? That's the evidence of born again. So, let's live it.